what's wonderful about the Lord Jesus? He is complex. His characteristics, his attributes are um, manifold and uh, in harmony one with the other. So it's complicated for us to make sure when we consider his person, we aren't um, extracting from the mix of all of his perfections one of his attributes as over against the other. For instance, do you believe the Lord Jesus is almighty? Yeah, me too. But if we only knew of his power, we might be fearful of approaching him. So let me ask you this. Do you believe the Lord Jesus is merciful and gentle and compassionate? Yeah, and, and, but, but, but if that's all you know about him, you might think he's your pal. You might refer to him, I think, rather blasphemously as the big guy upstairs. But when you take, for instance, these two marvelous characteristics, his unbridled power and his uh, uh, grace and mercy, you find, wow, oh, Lord Jesus, you are perfect in every way. So there are some who so emphasize uh, the love of the Lord Jesus that they have a very hard time accepting the fact there will ever be a day of judgment or accountability. In fact, they make statements like, I could not follow a God who would destine anyone who would even have a place called hell. But those are folks who are extracting from the rather complex mix of the Lord's perfections, the one, the one they feel comfortable with to the exclusion of the others. And I think one of the biggest deceptions of the evil one is that there will not be a day of reckoning for us. Get all the gusto. If it feels good, do it. Because that's all there is. When you die, you die. That's not true if you're a Bible person. And so we want to talk tonight about a day of judgment, which is real and true and perhaps not the most pleasant topic, but we don't pick and choose the Lord's characteristics that we like, and we don't pick and choose the passages in the Bible that we're comfortable with. We take the full counsel of God. So in keeping with that, could I ask for your attention to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. We're simply picking up where we left off the last time. Here's what it says. Then, uh, let's just stop. Then is a time indicator. Then is forward movement. Then means progression in God's redemptive plan. Then means now that you have given attention to what has come before, now give your attention to what comes after, what has come before. Well, the first key peak in God's prophetic mountain range is the rapture. It's our glorious hope. Be ready. It could come at any time. It involves the church. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And I got to tell you, it means we will be with him forevermore. Subsequent to it, when? I don't know. I just know it's subsequent to it. 
is the judgment seat of Christ. No judgment with respect to our salvation because the Lord Jesus has already fully obtained it for those who by faith accept it. This is the time when the Lord will disseminate rewards to his sons and daughters in keeping with the way we have exercised good stewardship of the resources he has given us while here on earth. And then after this comes this horrific character, this anti-Messiah, this parody of the real Christ, this pretender to the throne who somehow rallies the world's attention. Well, because he's charismatic and he's attractive and he speaks well and he makes promises. Wow, isn't that far-fetched? So he will uh, lead people into a time of horrific rebellion against the real Christ. And so you have this seven-year period of great tribulation characterized by the justifiable outpouring of the wrath of a holy God on a sin-sick world. Well, what's going to bring it to to end? Well, not the reformation of human character. Good night. I hope you're not putting all that much confidence in your flesh. Goodness gracious. Uh, What will bring this horrific time to an end is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be dramatic. It'll be visible. No guesswork about it. He will come with great glory and initiate thereafter this marvelous 1,000-year period. It's his reign on earth since it's a 1,000 years. We call it the millennium. He will rule and reign from his capital city, Jerusalem, and those who are his followers will rule and reign with him. Now at the end of the thousand year period, then, you see, so that's what we're reading about now. If you back up before verse 11, which we did last week, you'll see it's describing the millennium. So now we read this time indicator in verse 11, then. So what happens after the 1,000 year millennial period? Look, look. Then I, that's John, the apostle, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then, after the millennium, comes something called the great white throne judgment. Don't buy the deception that there is not a final day of judgment in accounting. It's not true. There is. It's called the great white throne judgment. Great! It is great. Why? Because the greatest one imaginable is seated on the throne. It is great because the one who occupies it is the king above all kings. It is great because the one enthroned is the preeminent one of the entire universe. It is great. And it is white. Because it's based on purity of judgment. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. There is no righteousness, any unrighteousness anywhere around the throne. The judgments that proceed from the great white throne are characterized by undefiled, uncorrupted righteousness. It is great. It is wide. Make no mistake about it, it's a throne. It's the place of ultimate sovereignty and authority. 
It's a symbol of power and majesty and glory. And of course, you agree with me, the only one suitably qualified to occupy the throne is none other than Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one. Isn't this good? Jesus, the lamb, the humble and gentle lamb. Jesus, who left behind divine privileges so as to come here. Jesus, who took on human flesh. Jesus, who was subjected to abuse and mockery and uh, false accusation. And Jesus, who was subjected to crucifixion. Uh, Jesus, who was despised and uh, rejected and humiliated. Jesus, who suffered uh, in our place. It's this Jesus who will be enthroned then on the great white throne. He deserves it, don't you think? Yeah, I do too. It's a great white throne from which then, after the millennium, he will exercise sovereign authority over the entire universe. In fact, he is so mighty and so powerful and so awe-inspiring that we read from his presence, earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. He is gentle. He is long-suffering. He is the compassionate, sacrificial lamb of God. But what we're reading about here is not the gentle Jesus. We're reading about the Lord of all, who is like a consuming fire. Once in his presence, People mocked him, but then in his presence, earth and heaven can't even stand before him. They will flee, and there can't even be a place found for them. Folks, try if you will, but you cannot save planet earth. Try if you will. You cannot save planet Earth because God, the Creator, is going to destroy it and replace it. Not my opinion. This is the Bible. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth... And its works will be burned up. That's what it says. Not so surprising. I mean, God created the earth. But then, from the great white throne, he is going to uncreate it. And they, the earth and heaven, don't misunderstand. Heaven is not the place, in this case, where the Lord dwells. Heaven means the atmosphere, in this context, around the earth. The air, the planets, those things are what's included. Then, from the great white throne, God will uncreate all of them. And they will not go somewhere else. In fact, the text says no place was found for them. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to run? Where are they going to hide? You see the earth 
and the heaven will be uncreated. The earth and the heaven were created out of nothing, and then they will go back into sheer and utter nothingness. They will go out of existence. That's all she wrote. Lights out, earth and heaven. The earth as we know it will not be reformed. It will be terminated. Now what I just shared with you is sort of contrary to what most in the scientific community hold to be true. Have you heard of the first law, for instance, of thermodynamics? It states that matter or energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be changed into other forms, in most cases lesser forms. And so that's called the second law of thermodynamics. So matter cannot end. It can be transformed, matter can be changed, uh, but no completely new matter can come into existence. There's no such thing as new matter. So as an example, if I were to hold up in front of you a piece of wood and then set it on fire, it would not go out of existence. It would be transformed into a new form of matter, namely ash. It still exists because matter, don't you see, say some, is eternal. But that, my dear friends, is bunk. Taint true. I don't care how many abbreviations a person has after his or her name. You can still be darkened in your understanding. You can be real smart, but real unwise. No, matter is not eternal. And at the great white throne judgment, the Lord Jesus will see to it that all matter, as we know it, will be entirely destroyed, not changed, not transformed, terminated, put out of existence. Why? Because God is eternal, matter is not. Don't get these confused. God is infinite, matter is only finite. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, matter. In the end, God. Not in the end, matter. You cannot give the quality of eternality to matter. God has no beginning nor an end. Matter has both a beginning and a point of termination. And the Lord Jesus will put it to an end. So those who reject the biblical perspective and who deny God as creator essentially advance this thinking. If I could just simplify atheistic, evolutionistic, um, so-called scientific uh, worldview, it says this, matter is eternal. That's the first point. Second, matter is all that exists. There's nothing that transcends matter. There are no spiritual realities. This is reality. But don't talk to me about unseen spiritual realities. No, matter is eternal. Matter is all that exists. And dead matter became living matter. That's you. You're living matter. 
And your beginning is not traced to the God who created you in his own image. You just came together through some chance transaction between matter in the oceans millennia ago and somehow you in all of your grandeur and sophistication and your circulatory system and your respiratory system and your brain and all the rest, you evolved from dead matter. You know, I don't have that much faith. I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop at the evidentiary basis uh, for the creator who precedes matter and exists way beyond it. So God is not the work of matter. Matter is the work of God. God is not subject to matter. Matter is at his disposal. Matter did not lead to the existence of God. God created matter, and therefore he can uncreate it. The earth is the work of God's hands, and by his hands the matter, which we call earth and heaven, will pass away. So let me make a statement that's a little dogmatic, yet I think true. The current environmentalist movement, in my opinion, is less about good stewardship of the earth than it is about the deification of the earth. If anyone is a good steward of the earth, yes, it ought to be Christians. Absolutely. Let's not waste. That's not the environmentalist movement of today. You know what the environmentalist movement of today is? Mother Earth. Mother Nature. Not Father God who spoke it into existence. I'm telling you it's idolatry. It's a subtle attempt to replace Father God as creator with an idol called Mother Earth, it's personified, don't you see? It is just matter, but it's given personhood. Mother Nature. Baloney. It's not true. The Earth has been created by Father God. Why? To house us. I'm not bowing at the feet of Mother Nature. The environment is not here for me to worship or serve it. It is here to house you and me. In the beginning, the earth, well, things were formless and void. And so God, before we came into being, filled the void and made it such that we could survive in it, provided for all our needs. I have to tell you, the only value that the environment possesses is that it's the abode in which we are to live and glorify the Creator. It doesn't have any value or stand-alone meaning. It's only a means to the end of glorifying the God who spoke it into existence. I'm not, it isn't Mother Nature who brought this all about. And God said, let there be light. 
Matter is not eternal. Things didn't begin with matter. Things are not going to end with matter. It won't have the last word. God was in the beginning, and God shall evermore be. And he who spoke it all into existence can just as easily speak it out of existence. And he will. So God filled the earth and the heavens with all that which we need to live and thrive and bring glory to his name. But I must tell you, we messed it up. We corrupted it. Now, we didn't corrupt it by using the wrong light bulbs. (laughs) We corrupted it by being people given to sin. We stunk it up to the high heavens. We corrupted it. We defiled it. We broke it. We can't fix it. It's a mess. Who's going to clean it up? Well, I'll tell you who's going to clean it up. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, God will uncreate what he has created and what we have corrupted. And he's going to do it at the great white throne judgment. He'll clean up the mess we've made of the earth, not by remodeling it, but by entirely replacing it. With what? What are we going to live in if he gets rid of the matter which we call heaven and earth? He's going to replace it, here's the steel, with a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1. Then, another time indicator, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Wow. That's great. So I ask you this question. Is it only physical matter, which we call the earth and heaven, which will be summoned to appear before the great white throne judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. You know who else is going to be summoned to that uh, moment of final judgment? People. Let me see if I can mess you up a little bit. Do you know whether you're going to be one of them? When you get the summons to appear before the great white throne judgment, if not even heaven and earth can stand before him, and not even heaven and earth has a place to run and hide, this is a rather fearful enterprise. Do you know whether you're going to get the summons or not to appear before the king of kings? Do you know? Would you think it arrogant of me if I told you I'm not going to be there? No way. I'm not, I'm not getting the summons. I'm not going to be judged there. Someone already has on my behalf. If I was you, I would stay up all night until you can answer for sure. Will I be summoned to stand before the King of Kings whose eyes are so piercing they'll see right through me? 
There will be no defense attorney, no appeal. There'll be no jury deciding the case. In fact, I will not make a defense. Salvation, mine, will not even be an issue then. It will simply be the verdict. Guilty is charged. Now depart from me forevermore. I hope you have a horrible night. I hope you can't sleep. I hope you lose your appetite. I hope you toss and turn until you can confidently look yourself in the mirror and say, I won't be there because Jesus paid it all for me. And I, would you sing it with me? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin, he, and so Lord Jesus, we thank you that nobody could stand uh, on their own merits, but we lay claim to your merits and your righteousness, put on our side of the ledger, if only we ask you to. There is no defense attorney who could get us off of your hook. So therefore, your pardon is all the more attractive. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for satisfying the righteous requirements of the law and the unbridled holiness of the Father. For us, it's substitutionary, it's gracious, it's unfathomable, it's inexpressible, but it's true. Oh, God, not only do we not want to be summoned to stand before you, we don't want anyone else to either. So we just have been reminded of our agenda. It's political in sorts. It's economic in sorts. It's education in sorts. But no, no, no. The distinct agenda given to us is to do what we could to entice people into the atmosphere of your forgiveness so that they too can avoid having to give a final accounting, one that will determine their final destiny entirely apart from you and all things that are good. That's our mandate. That's our commission. That's what we are to be doing until your return. And boy, do we look forward to your return. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.